Now we're going to spend a bit of time looking uh, primarily at these verses, but through this chapter of James. And as has already been mentioned, as we're looking at this book and uh, chapters such as this, we think about the book of James in general, James says many things. There is lots in the chapters that he writes. So we won't cover every verse, but uh, I want to think primarily tonight about uh, the flow of the chapter, but kind of turn it back to front. So I want to look at a couple of things. And uh, one is the, if you like, the, the theological assertion that James makes. He brings out a particular point about uh, our salvation, and that is that uh, faith inevitably produces works. That's something that he says very clearly in this chapter. Then what I want to do is come back to the first half of the, of the chapter and see how that's evidenced. So we see an example of that that James brings out, particularly relevant to his own situation in the first half of the chapter. Okay, so that's, that's broadly speaking what I want to do tonight. Now this whole idea of faith and works is very central to our studies or our, our series on James. Uh, somebody asked me this week, what's the title for the sermon? And I hadn't thought of one, so I thought uh, it could be Faith and Works. And then I was reminded, well, that's actually the title of our whole series, Faith Works. So I thought, well, good, at least I'm on the right lines. But that whole link between faith and what it produces is essential to what James is trying to say. So let's just hold that up just for this uh, starting section and recognize that. This is a key component of what James is trying to say. And uh, if we're just going to see um, how this links into the first chapter, we're starting chapter 2 today, but you can see how at the end of chapter 1, James has already, already touched on many different aspects of what it means to be a Christian, but he says these words at the end of chapter 1. He's addressing what he would term true religion. Now, we sometimes shy away from the word religion, but James uses it to describe the Christian life. And here's what he says in verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So he touches on the tongue or the speech. That comes up time and again in this book. And he goes on to say, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see how practical that is. So James has already started to touch on some very tangible aspects of what the people he's addressing and what your life should look like if your faith is genuine. So we're we're following really that train of thought into chapter 2. So if I uh, was to say that the first uh, point that I want to look at again, going into the second half of the chapter, is this one of faith and works. That, if you, if you were here last week, and if you remember something that Corey picked up on, that's been a problem for some people. So Corey last week mentioned the fact that some people, and even some uh, historically high-profile theological people, have said, well, James has got this real emphasis on works. I'm not so sure how that fits in. That seems to contradict other parts of the New Testament particularly, maybe particularly what the Apostle Paul writes, because the Apostle Paul is obviously so clearly focused on the fact that we are saved by faith in Jesus, uh, by grace, not by works. 
So to start saying immediately James's focus is on faith and works seems to provoke a degree of tension. So let's just, let's just work through that just for a few minutes as we're getting into this chapter. Just to turn to something that Paul says just for a minute in the book of Ephesians, I want to just bring together a couple of lines from Paul and some of what James says here to show that there's no tension and then actually to, to give us a right perspective on what James is saying about faith and about works. So Paul says in the book of Ephesians, let me read a, a verse from chapter 2. Paul says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So your understanding of yourself as a Christian has to be that it's not of yourself. You didn't engineer your salvation. You're not going to go out, I hope, this week, and if you get the opportunity to share your faith with any of your friends, say to them, you know what? If you try really hard for the rest of your life, then based on that, God might admit you into his family. That's not what we believe. We believe in uh, the salvation of God, his grace. Praise the Lord for that fact. But this is what James says also. In the chapter 1 of James, we read in verse 18, and again, this was brought out last week or the week before. He's, uh, James says this, speaking about God, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Can you see what James is saying there? Let me read that again. Of his own will, he brought us forth. He caused this to happen to us. He, he called us. He chose us. He brought us to faith. He's saying the same as what Paul is saying. And so there's no tension. And so this great truth, James also holds out to us this great assurance that because of the goodness of God and the work of God, we have salvation. But then, just to go back to, uh, to go a few verses on rather than James... James also says, our salvation is of God, but he brings out this emphasis, as I've said, on works, on what that means, what that looks like in our lives. So if I was to go into James chapter 2, a bit further down to verse 21, he speaks about Abraham and the way that Abraham's faith produced a change in his life. So he says this, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. It doesn't mean that his faith was in some way deficient, but that as he had faith, uh, the result of that was the way that he lived, the outworking of his faith with these works, these, these evidences of his faith, what he did, even to the extent of obeying God as he called him, to travel, as he called him, to uh, do what he did with his son. So you see what he's saying there is that this great faith that Abraham had resulted in a changed life, in the way that he lived his life. It evidenced itself. But if I was to go back to Paul and to that verse that I read just a minute ago in Ephesians, we find the same thing. So let me go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul has just said, By grace you've been saved through faith. But then he goes on and says this, it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he's absolutely clear that the faith that we have, this great gift of God, should result in such a degree of praise to God and thankfulness to God that it changes our lives. That he has prepared beforehand these good works that we may do, which are an evidence of our faith. Faith in him, saving faith, changes the way that we live. It doesn't leave us unchanged, in other words. So there should be a difference in our lives from the time where we come to recognize Jesus as Lord and as Savior, and as we go on from that point, walking after our Savior Jesus, every day seeking to follow him, being made more like our Savior Jesus. So it means, just to rephrase it again, that we can't say, well, I became a Christian once and it didn't make any difference to me. We've been saved by grace. And that makes a profound impact on who we are and should evidence itself in the way that we live. So this is the the point that James is really bringing out here. In this second half of the chapter, he wants to explain that the evidence of God's work in our lives is a changed life. Now, why is that so important? Why, Why does that matter? Why should that matter to you as you consider your life and the way that you live, the way that you interact with other people, Christians in this fellowship, and all your friends who aren't Christians and your colleagues and everybody else? Why does it make a difference that the way that you live should evidence a changed heart? Well, look at what James says at the start of the second half of the chapter. So I'm going to go now to verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. Look how he introduces this section. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? See that phrase? What good is it? What he's trying to say is, well, he's speaking to people who maybe say, well, I'm, I'm a believer. And it makes absolutely no difference. There's absolutely no evidence that God is at work in their lives at all. In other words, there's a distinct coldness about them. And and people who see them going about their daily business in the marketplace, if you like, would never have known. They would never have known. They would never have put that person alongside that beautiful Savior Jesus. He's saying, what what good is it for you to say you have all this, this faith? Maybe they claim also great understanding, comprehension, intellectually, but it doesn't make one bit of difference to their lives. What good is it? You see, good should result from the change in our hearts. As a result of this change, we're saved wonderfully into the family of God and saved so that we may bring the light of Christ, so that we may be his body amongst the darkness of the world, evidencing his light, being a blessing particularly to those, as we'll come on and see in just a minute, who are needy, who are alienated. James wants the people he's writing to to have a very clear sense that they are to make a difference, that they are to be a blessing to those uh, amongst who they live. Think, Think about it this way. When Jesus walked the earth, things were different amongst those whom he mixed. 
So Jesus came as the light of the world. Came, Jesus came as the one and the one only who was perfect. Jesus came as the great sacrifice. But Jesus came also and evidenced his power and his glory by doing good, by caring for those who were needy, for caring for the sick, for being alongside those who had nobody and who everybody else ignored. Jesus was light. He is the light and he was the light in a very dark place. So therefore, if we are those who bear his name, shouldn't we also be those who reflect him and who live to be a blessing to others? So just that point, just to bring that out, this is the kind of, this is the theological point that James is making, but I hope you see immediately that what it does is it has very practical implications. And this then I want to take back to the first half of the chapter and see how he works it out in their own particular local context. The book of James is hugely practical in many different ways. So if you like, these kinds of issues come up time and again. He's often talking about how people should live, how they should evidence their faith. But in this particular chapter, let's just see what he says. So, having seen this particular distinction, second, second main division of the chapter, the second point, is the outworking of that. Come with me back to the start of chapter 1 then. And the outworking that he wants to talk about, the evidence of this faith, the works that he specifically wants to draw people's attention to in this chapter, is what he calls partiality, favoritism favoritism it was relevant then and it's relevant now so what does he have to say about it well verse 1 my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our lord jesus christ the lord of glory so he then goes on to describe what he's talking about he describes a meeting now we don't get a lot of information about exactly what type of meeting he's describing Uh, He doesn't necessarily tell us whether or not the people, the two people who he describes here, are believers or visitors, whether they're familiar or unfamiliar with the setup. But there's a meeting in church circles. The church family are present, and two men come in. So he says, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes in, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and as he puts it, you pay attention to the one and you ignore the other, he says you're showing partiality. You've immediately identified a couple of people who just walked into the room and you said, that person. I like the look of that person. I don't like the look of that person. Or, I never even noticed them because I was so attracted to this person. He says you're showing favoritism. And what he wants to do in the next few verses is say, that's, that's almost anomalous. That just, that there's no place for that in the church. One evidence of a changed heart is that that shouldn't happen. Rather, there should be a regard for both equally in their need. So, a few things to say about this. First is to think immediately, uh, James is describing a particular situation. He obviously wanted to highlight in the people in his, uh, who he was writing to, but please don't think this doesn't apply. You may think, oh, well, that's a really obvious example. Uh, we know that if somebody comes in, maybe off the street, and we would describe it. Well, we kind of know nowadays that they, we should welcome them. We should make sure they have a seat. We wouldn't be so crass as to not give them a seat. So that's the example James uses, but just 
think for a minute about how favoritism works. How does it, how does it manifest itself in your thinking, in my thinking? What happens when we view different groups of people here and in your work, whatever? It's, it's much, it's, it has the potential to be much more subtle than that, doesn't it? All kinds of things go on in the dynamics between human beings, for good and for bad. Favoritism can be a, a really subtle one. So think about preference. Think about the people, say, that you know in St. Columbus here. Maybe you're just getting to know people. Maybe you find yourself always or, or often making value judgments about different people because you're new. Or maybe you've been here for 10 years and you find yourself assessing new people. Maybe you find that's happening in your workplace. Uh, you're ranking yourself according to how well you're performing uh, or how well other people aren't performing. And in these kinds of situations, when we add in our character and the way we're made as opposed to the way other people are made, all kinds of dynamics happen and there's all kinds of space for damaging thoughts to come in. Do you consider less people who come into this fellowship who have less charisma than you would like. Maybe there's somebody in your particular friendship group who has loads of charisma. Do they get all your attention? Maybe uh, there is just something about somebody's popularity. Maybe you know some people whose theology, as far as you're concerned, isn't quite up to scratch. You'd much rather talk to the people who've got all the answers. There's all kinds of ways in which favoritism can be at work in our hearts all the time. So we, we have to consider this and see how it can be relevant to us. Just to bring out a few things that James says in this passage. First is this. We should consider this issue as relevant, but we should also consider it as very relevant because it matters very much to God. In this first section, uh, let me just go down to verse 9. Come with me down to verse 9. Where James says this, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So those are very clear words, aren't they? If you show partiality, you're committing sin. Now, look at what he goes on to say for just a verse or two after this. In verse 10, he says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you don't commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Why does he say this? Why does he go from talking about partiality to kind of expanding it and bringing out these big sins, these serious sins, and explaining that you have to make sure that even in, even in one part of the law, if you've, if you've not been able to fulfill that, well, what he's doing is he's saying, don't just think there's something like partiality or favoritism. It's just a kind of a bit of a character flaw. It's not, really that, uh, it's not really that important. Or God doesn't see it as that important. He wants you to see it as very significant, actually. And think again about the dynamics of what we're talking about. He's describing this as happening within a group of people who call themselves the family of God. He's saying partiality is an ugly thing. And it's a sin. And he's saying, don't think of it as something that's just, just a, a little bit bad, a bit unpleasant about yourself. Or make sure that you don't just over, overlook it completely. Sometimes we don't even think about things like this. He, he highlights it very strongly, actually. 
He says it really matters to God. And the reason for this is rooted in a couple of verses before. If we go back to verse 5, look at what he says about the way that God deals with people. Partiality is all about humans ranking other humans. What does he say in verse 5? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom? So the poor are heirs of the kingdom. This, this wonderful kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, which is God's people, because of his grace, with all these undeserving people, equally undeserving, how anomalous that it should have some people who think they're better than others, or folk who ignore other people, or who just look down on other people. Just shouldn't be the case. So he's very clear that this matters very much to God because it's rooted in the way that he deals with people. It's rooted in the way that he deals with people. If you like, God's kingdom turns things upside down. The kingdoms that we are a part of, our social circles, our work circles, maybe sometimes the kingdoms that we would build for ourselves, are full of injustices. They're full of our biases and our preferences and the, the nasty ways in which we can think about and treat people. But God's kingdom is rooted in mercy. And he chooses the poor and the insignificant. And this is said in many different ways and parts of the Bible. He chooses those who would seem to be nobodies and he exalts them as his sons and daughters. You can start to see how anomalous it should be, how it just doesn't make sense for there to be favoritism or partiality in the church. If Christ is at work in our hearts, if we have begun to see something of the way in which he has because of his great grace worked in us to cause us to see him as Lord, to call out for salvation and to know his goodness, then how can we possibly ignore the person who comes in who's not so impressive looking? Just doesn't make sense. So this is something that uh, James highlights very clearly. And consider, just by extension, again, Jesus himself in the way that he lived. Think about the way that he treated people as he walked the earth, as he went amongst all kinds of different groups of people. Think about the way at particular times his disciples said to him, or said to those around, take, take the children away for a minute. They're, they're, at this point in time, they're just being a bit noisy. Can we just take, thank you, parents? And Jesus says, no, 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 bring them here. These are hugely significant to me. So, Literally, the little people who were being viewed as little people and to be kept out of the way, Jesus, Jesus brings for that time center stage and he says, I want them here. I want them to be seen as very significant. Think about the kinds of people, the kinds of adults that Jesus mixed with. He provoked great consternation amongst some of the religious community because he mixed with undesirables, mixed with all kinds of people. And yet Jesus said, these are the kinds of people that I've come for. These are the desperately needy people that I love and that I want, I want them to know me. He didn't show partiality to them. Many different ways Jesus practically evidenced this. He taught this and he evidenced it. He ate with sinners. He ate with people the Jewish community hated. He, he ate with all kinds of people. And so he evidenced this. And of course, he evidenced his love, his regard for the marginalized, most clearly when he died on the cross. 
Because think about it this way for a minute. What person ever deserved to have the favor of God? Every single person that Christ came and walked amongst and spoke to through the ages until now, where we consider ourselves, all of us, you and me, we are where the outsiders, if you like, at his table. If you consider the, the, the God of glory, which of us could ever have just entered into his presence and said, here I am, thanks very much, I'll take a seat. We are, we are utter outsiders, created by him, but so far away from him, following our own paths. And yet in his mercy, he came down low, became the Savior again so that he could lift us up and so that he could say to us, I want you at the great wedding supper that I will host. One day when I come again, when I bring all my people to be with me, I'm going to have a great feast. And I want these people who were outsiders, who were outside my kingdom, I want to bring them in and I want to seat them and I want them to enjoy this feast with me. So consider that, that great act that Jesus did, that great mercy, that great love that Jesus showed to those who were not deserving. And when we consider that, it makes it impossible for us to look down on the undesirable. It should make it impossible for us to overlook somebody. It should make it impossible for us to consciously kind of just negate somebody in whatever circles we mix in, because they're just not so interesting to us, or because they trouble us. This faith that we have, which is the great gift of God, which is his love, should be at work in us, producing a change in us, so that because of his great love for us, we are, we are ready and able to show love to others. So one writer I read just thinking about these passages, says the church is a family, not a club. Sometimes we think about the world, even the church, in terms of a club. It's the people that we like. It's the people that we think should get in. But it's not. It's a family. And in fact, it's God's, God's family, God's people together. There's absolutely no way we can get to decide who to ignore or not. So James is very practical then. He brings out this problem, which was maybe in evidence then and always has the potential to rear its head. Every day in my heart is the potential for favoritism and for making value judgments about other people based on how I feel about them, how I decide, I decide they should be treated. And so James challenges me to the core, calls me again and again to remember the gospel, how I have been treated by God. Just to say one more thing about this before we finish. Pick out one more verse from what James speaks about, just to, again, elevate the priority of this. Verse 8 says this. Uh, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just to pick out that idea of the royal law. What's he talking about there? Well, think about Christ as the, as the king, the great king, the one that we, that we so need, the one who leads us so perfectly. What law 
does he institute, but the law. But the law of Christ is the law of love. This great king who came so low and who laid down his life for us. Think about the way that he uh, considered us and the way that he acted towards us. And this is the outworking of it, of course, isn't it? This great, maybe familiar phrase to you, love your neighbor as yourself. This is great evidence of, of how, again, it should be that we treat others. And of course, we think about our neighbor as the one in whom we come into contact with. Not the one we prefer, the one in whom we come into contact with. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And that's, that's the standard that our king practiced, and that's the way in which he wants us to live. I'm reading a, a, a novel at the moment. It's a, kind of, it's a kind of historical novel, bit of detective, bit of intrigue. Helps me go to sleep at night. It's quite enjoyable. But there's a, there's a main character in it who's got a kind of physical deformity. He's stooped. He has a problem with his back. And this character has to come into contact with the king. So he's been sent by a delegation, and he has to meet, I think it's, it's Henry VIII. So he has to come into contact with Henry VIII. Very nervous. He's never met the king before. He's got an important job to do. And there's loads of people going to be surrounding them when they meet. All these different people who are gathered, all the great lords and all the people from the city who are coming out to evidence this great uh, coming procession of the king. And as this character comes before the king, the king receives the petitions that this character has to give him. And then the king levels him, completely mocks him. He identifies the fact that this guy has a, has a deformity, that he's a, he's a bit of an outcast. People in, this, in that particular society, they, they, kind of, they have superstitions about him. They don't like him because of his deformity. They worry about him. And so he's marginalized a bit. And the king, because he's a fearsome king, because he's a, an unkind king, because he's seeking to claw power to himself, he, he puts down this marginalized man. He calls him crookback. And everybody in the circle laughs. And this man who has this deformity, is further ostracized. He's put further outside the camp. And he has to deal with the shame that follows him around all his life. But our king doesn't act like that. Our king, Jesus, doesn't need to claw power to himself because he is the Almighty. He is good. And he sees those, again, just to say, he sees those who are so desperately needy, and he meets them exactly at their point of need, and he provides mercy because of his sacrifice. And then he says, now go out to all those other ones who are marginalized, all those other people who feel alone, all those other ones who come to church and who feel really awkward, or who've not come to church for five years because they had a bad experience and they're terrified to ever come back, or those people in your work who actually nobody does like, all of those ones who are marginalized and, uh, and show them love and show them mercy and draw them, call them to the great king who is all mercy and love and uh, whose gospel we so desperately need to remember and, and all those who are marginalized need to know that it is for them. Amen. Let me pray.
We thank you, Lord, for the way that you treat us, that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. We thank you for your grace towards us. And um, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are, you are the light, you are the truth, you are the one who gave yourself. We thank you that you're merciful, that you're kind, that you know us and you identify with us in our weakness. And uh, yet you call us sons and daughters if we trust in you. So help us to do that. And please help us to see then how you call us to live a changed life. But enable us to do this by your Spirit, by revealing to us again and again your great love, evidenced to us at the cross. And help us to love the unlovely, help us to love the unloved, help us not to show favoritism. And may we be a church that goes out of its way to care for the needy and the lost and the marginalized. And may we be a church that welcomes, truly welcomes, all kinds of people and that doesn't allow favoritism or division or judgments uh, to cloud or to spoil or to mar the fellowship. Because we are your people. If we are Christians, we are called by your name. Uh, Help us then to see you and to follow you. Amen.